This seminar called Inevitable Ecstasy is about a very sticky problem, which is to say the problem to which the Buddha primarily addressed himself, which is that of agony, suffering. But before we get into that, we have to be clear about certain basics. And these basics have to do not so much with concepts and ideas as they do with a state of mind, a state of sensation, a state of consciousness, and we need to understand that, even be in that, before we can really go very far. And this is an extraordinarily difficult state of mind to talk about, even though in its nature it's extremely simple. Because it is in a way like we were when we were babies, when we hadn't been told anything and didn't know anything other than what we felt, and we had no names for it. Now, of course, as we grow older, we learn to differentiate one thing from another, one event from another, and above all, ourselves from everything else. Well and good, provided you don't lose the foundations. Just as mountains are differentiated, but they're all based on the earth, so the multiple things of this world are differentiated, but they have, as it were, a basis. There is no word for that basis, not really, because words are only for distinction. And so there can't really be a word, not even an idea, of the non-distinction. We can feel it, but we can't think it but we don't feel it like an object. You feel you're alive, you feel you're conscious, but you don't know what consciousness is because consciousness is present in every conceivable kind of experience. It's like the space in which we live, which is everywhere. It's like a fish being in water, and presumably a fish doesn't know it's in the water because it never goes out. A bird presumably knows nothing of the air and we really know nothing of consciousness and we pretend space isn't there. Welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> so, however, when you grow up and become fascinated, which is really the right word, spellbound, enchanted, by all the things that adults wave at you, you forget the background. And you come to think that all the distinctions which you've been learning are the supremely important things to be concerned with. You become hypnotized. And so when we are told to pay attention to what matters, we get stuck with it. And that's what in Buddhism is called attachment. Attachment doesn't mean that you enjoy your dinner, you enjoy sleeping, or beauty. Those are responses 
of our organism in its environment as natural as feeling hot near a fire or cold near ice. So are certain responses of fear or of sorrow. They are not attachment. Attachment is exactly translated by the modern slang term hanger. It's a kind of stickiness or what in psychology would be called blocking when you are in a state of wobbly hesitation, not knowing how to flow on. That's attachment, what is meant by the Sanskrit word glacier. So we get a hang up on all the various things that we're told as we grow up by our parents, our aunts and uncles, our teachers, by our peer group. And the first thing that everybody wants to tell us is the difference between ourselves and the rest of the world and between those actions which are voluntary and those which are involuntary what we do on the one hand and what happens to us on the other and this is of course immensely confusing to a small child because it's told to do all sorts of things that are really supposed to happen like going to sleep like having bowel movements, like uh, loving people, like not blushing, stopping being anxious, and all sorts of things like that. So what happens is this. The child is told in some that we, your parents, elders and betters, command you to do what will please us only if you do it spontaneously. <laughs> and no wonder everybody's completely confused. We go through life with that burden on us. We therefore develop this curious thing. We, we, we develop a thing which is called an ego. Now I've got to be very clear to you what I mean by an ego. An ego is not the same thing as a particular living organ. Uh, for my philosophy, the particular living organism, which is inseparable from a particular environment, that is to say, from the universe as centered here and now, is something real. It isn't a thing. I call it a feature of the universe. But what we call our ego is something abstract which is to say it has the same order and kind of reality as an hour or an inch or a pound or a line of longitude. It is for purposes of discussion. It is for convenience. In other words, it is a social convention that we have what is called an ego. But the fallacy that all of us make is that we treat it as if it were a physical organ, as if it were real in that sense, when in fact it is composed on the one hand of our image of ourselves, that is our idea of ourselves, as when we say to somebody, you must improve your image. Now this image of ourselves is obviously not ourselves any more 
then an idea of a tree is a tree. Any more than you can get wet in the word water. And to go on with, our image of ourselves is extremely inaccurate and incomplete. Would that some God the gifted gears to see ourselves as others see us. We don't. So my image of me is not at all your image of me. And my image of me is extremely incomplete in that it does not include any information to speak of about the functioning of my nervous system, my circulation, my metabolism, my subtle relationships with the entire surrounding human and non-human universe. So the image I have of myself is a caricature. It is arrived at through mainly my interaction with other people who tell me who I am in various ways, either directly or indirectly, and I play about with what their picture is of me and they play something back to me so that we set up this conception. And this started very, very early in life. And I was told, you see, and you were told, that we must have a consistent image. You must be you. You have to find your identity in terms of image. And this is an awful red herring. A lot of the current quest for identity among younger people is a search for an acceptable image. What role can I play? Who am I in the sense of what am I going to do in life? And so on. Now, while that has a certain importance, if it's not backed up by deeper matters, it's extraordinarily misleading. So therefore, on the one hand, there is this image, which is intellectual, emotional, imaginative, and so forth. Now, we would say, I don't feel that I am only an image. I feel there's something more real than that, because I feel, I mean, I have a sense of there being a particular sort of How do we say? A center of something. Some sort of sensitive core inside the skin. And that corresponds to the word I. Let's take a look at this. Because the thing that we feel as being myself is certainly not the whole body. because a lot of the body can be seen as an object. In other words, if you stand, stretch yourself out, lie on the floor and turn your head and look at yourself, you know, you can see your feet and your legs and all this up to here. And finally it all vanishes and there's a sort of a vague nose in front. And you assume you have a head because everybody else does. And you've looked in a mirror and that told you you had a head, but you can never see it just like you can't see your back. So you tend to put your ego on the side of the unseen part of the body, the part you can't get at, because that seems to be where it all comes from, and you feel it. But what is it that we feel? Because if I see clearly, 
and my eyes are in functioning order. The eyes certainly are not conscious of themselves. There are no spots in front of them. No defects, in other words, in the lens or in the retina or in the optic nerves that give hallucinations. So also, therefore, if my ego, my consciousness is working properly, I ought not to be aware of it as something sort of there being a nuisance in a way in the middle of things because your ego is awfully hard to take care of. <laughs> well, what is it then that we feel? Well, I think I've discovered what it is. Uh, it's a chronic, habitual sense of muscular strain, which we were taught in the whole process of doing spontaneous things to order. When you're taking off in a jet plane and the thing has gone rather further down the runway than you think it should have without getting up in the air, you start pulling at your seatbelt get this thing off the ground. Perfectly useless. So in the same way, when our community tells us, look carefully, now listen, Pay attention. We start using muscular strains around our eyes, ears, jaws, hands, to try to use our muscles to make our nerves work, which is, of course, futile. And in fact, it gets in the way of the functioning of the nerves. Try to concentrate. And then when we try to control our emotions, we hold our breath, pull our stomachs in, or tighten our rectal muscles to hold ourselves together. Now pull yourself together! Uh, immediately, what are you to do? What does a child understand by that? He does it muscularly, pulls himself together. It's just useless. So everybody chronically pulls themselves together. So that it's so funny if you get a person to just lie on the floor and relax. There's the floor under you, as firm as can be, holding you up. Nevertheless, you will detect that the person is making all sorts of tensions, lest he should suddenly turn into a nasty jello on the floor. <laughs> so that chronic tension, which in Sanskrit is called sankocha, which means contraction, is the root of what we call the feeling of the ego. So that, in other words, this feeling of tightness is the physical referent for the psychological image of ourselves. So that we get the ego as the marriage of an illusion to a futility. Even though the idea of an I with a name, with a being, is naturally useful for social communication, provided we know what we're doing and take it for what it is. But we are so hung up on this concept that it confuses us even in the proposition that it might be possible for us to feel otherwise. Because we ask the question, if we hear about people who have uh, transcended well, we ask, how do you do that? Please welcome on stage the amazing Well, I say, Jules. 
What do you mean? You. How do you do that? Because the you you're talking about doesn't exist. So you can't do anything about it. Any more than you can cut a cheese with a line of longitude. <laughs> now that sounds very discouraging, doesn't it? But let's suppose now you are babies again. And you don't know anything. Now, don't be frightened because anything you know you can get back later. But for the time being, here is our awareness. And let's suppose you have no information about this at all and no words for it. And that my talking to you is just a noise. Now don't try to do anything about this. Don't make any effort. Because naturally, by force of habit, certain tensions remain inside you, and certain ideas and words drift all the time through your mind. Just like um, wind blows or clouds move across the sky. Don't bother with them at all. Don't try to get rid of them. Just be aware of what's going on in your head. like it was clouds in the sky or the crackling of the fire there's no problem to this all you have to do really is look and listen without naming and if you are named never mind just listen to that. Now that you can't force anything here, that you can't willfully stop thinking and stop naming, is only telling you that the separate you doesn't exist. It isn't a mark of defeat. It isn't a sign of your lack of practice in meditation. That it runs on all by itself simply means that the individual separate you is taken to your imagination. So you are aware at this point of a happy Remember, you don't know anything about the difference between you and it. You've no words for the difference between inside and outside, between here and there. Nobody has taught you what you see out in front of you is either near 
going on, which includes absolutely everything included. And it's a happening. It doesn't happen to you. Because where is that? You, what you call you, is part of the happening. <laughs> or an aspect of it. It has no parts. It's not like a machine. And it's a little scary because you'd say, well, who's in control around here? Why should there be a? Now that's an, a very weird notion we have that processes require something outside them to control them. It never occurred to us that processes could be self-controlling. Even though we say to someone, control yourself. We can always, in order to think about self-control, we split a person in two. So that there's a you separate from the self that's supposed to be controlled. Well, how can that achieve anything? How can a noun start a verb? Yet it's a fundamental superstition that that can be done. So you have this process, which is quite spontaneous, going on. We call it life. It's controlling itself. It's aware of itself. It's aware of itself through you. You are an aperture through which the universe looks at itself. And because of it's the universe looking at itself through you, there's always an aspect of itself that it can't see. So it's just like that snake, you see, that is pursuing its tail. Because the snake can't see its head, like you can't. So therefore, we always find, as we investigate the universe, make the microscope bigger and bigger and bigger, and we will find ever more minute things. Make the telescope bigger and bigger and bigger, and the universe expands because it's running away from itself. It won't do that if you don't chase it. <laughs> So, the universe is chasing its own tail, you see, this, it's, it's the thing we're talking about, this Tao. And uh, it's a game of hide and seek. Really, when you ask the question, who is doing the chasing, you are still working under the assumption that every verb has to have a subject. That when there is an action, there has to be a doer. Well, that's a, what I will call a grammatical convention. Leading to what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Like the famous it in It Is Raining. So when you say, there cannot be knowing without a knower, this is merely saying, 
no more, then there can't be a verb without a subject. And that's a grammatical rule and not a law of nature. Anything you can think of as a thing, as a noun, can be described by a verb. And there are languages which do that. It sounds awkward in English. Face it. When you look for doers as distinct from deeds, you can't find them. Just as when you look for stuff underlying the patterns of nature, you can't find any stuff. You just find more and more patterns. There never was any stuff. It's a ghost. What we call stuff is simply patterns seen out of rules. Fuzzy. So we call it star. <laughs> you know, like that cakewalk. <laughs> so, we you know we have these words energy, matter, being, reality, even Tao. And we can never find them. They always lose entirely. Although we do have a very strong intuition that. All this that we see is connected or related. So we speak of a universe. Although that word really means one term. It's your term now. <laughs> like you make one term to look at yourself. You can't make two terms and see what's looking. <laughs> so. It's very simple. You only have to understand that you can't do anything about it. And as they say in Zen, you cannot take hold of it, but you can't get rid of it. And in not being able to get it, you give it. So all these trials that gurus put their students through have as their ultimate object convincing you that you can't do anything. Only it's convincing you very thoroughly. It's convincing you in more than a theoretical way. Now perhaps I shouldn't tell you that. But you see, I'm not a guru in that I don't give individual spiritual direction to people. And I give away the Guru's tricks. That may not be very good, but on the other hand, those tricks are only necessary in the sense that I would say to someone, it's necessary for you to go to a psychiatrist if you think you must. And if you are not going to be satisfied without going to Japan and studying Zen Buddhism from a Roshi, okay, you better go. It isn't necessary unless you say it is. If that's the only thing that will satisfy you, and you feel that deep down inside you. If you've got that yen, therefore you've got that yen. But if on the other hand you haven't, you haven't. And I'm not going to put you down on that account, you see. The point is, what do you want to do? What is it in you to do? But there it is. 
that you can struggle and struggle and struggle, and indeed will do so, as long as you have the feeling inside you that you're missing something. people, your friends, all sorts of people will do their utmost to persuade you that you're missing something. Because they're missing something and they think they're getting it through a certain way. And therefore, to assure themselves, they'd like you to do it too. So there's this thing. And you see, a clever guru beguiles his students by letting them have the feeling of success and accomplishment in certain directions. A guru gives people exercises, A, that are difficult but can be accomplished, and B, that are impossible. You'll always be hung up on the impossible ones, but the possible ones you will feel, get a feeling of making progress, so that you will double your efforts to solve the impossible exercises. And then, they range things in many, many ranks and levels through which you can advance this state of consciousness, that state of consciousness, or think of the degrees of masonry, or so on. Ranks in learning things, the different belts you get in judo, and all that kind of jazz. You can do that. And it gives people the sense of competing with themselves, or even with others. Because of the feeling inside that that is just something I'm missing. Of course, if you are learning any sort of skill and you haven't perfected the skill, there is indeed something you're missing. But in this thing that we're talking about, that isn't true. Because uh, you, as the Buddhists say, are Buddhas from the very beginning. And all that searching is like looking for your own head can't see and therefore might conceivably imagine that you're lost. So, but that indeed is the point, that we don't see what looks, and therefore we think we've lost it. And so we're in search of the self, the Atman. Well, that's the one thing we can't find, <laughs> because we have it. We are it! <laughs> but we confuse it with all these images. So therefore, if you understand perfectly clearly that you can't do anything to find that very, very important thing, God, enlightenment, nirvana, Then what? Well, I find, you know, it's so stupid because even if I tell myself, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Why did I say that? You see? Why did I say that? Why did I go out of my way to tell myself there's nothing I can do about it? Because in the back of my mind, there was a funny little feeling that if I did tell myself that, something different would happen. See? All right. So even that doesn't work. Nothing works. 
Now, when absolutely nothing works, where are you? Well, here we are. I mean, you know, there's this feeling of something going on. Now, the world doesn't stop dead when there's nothing you can do. There's something happening. Now, just there, that's what I'm talking about. There's the happening. When you are not doing anything about it, you're not not doing anything about it, you just can't help it. It goes on despite anything you think or worry about or whatever. Now, there is the point. Right there. And remember, although you will think at first that this is a kind of determinism, there are two reasons why it isn't. One, there is nobody being determined. Now, other people think of determinism as the direction of what happens by the past, the causation of what happens by the past. Now, if you will use your senses, you will see that that is a hallucination. The present does not come from the past. If you listen, and only listen, close your eyes. Where do the sounds come from, according to your ears? You hear, you hear them coming out of silence. The sounds come, and then they fade off. They go like echoes, or echoes in the labyrinths of your brain, which we call memory. The sounds don't come from the past. They come out of now. And trail off. You can do that later with your eyes. You can see, like when you're watching television, there's a vibration coming out from the screen through your eyes. And it starts from there somewhere. Because we see the hand and then they move. We think that the movement is caused by the hands, and that the hands were there before, and so can move later. We don't see that our memory of the hands is an echo of their always being now. They never were, they never will be, they're always now. So is the motion. And that, that is recollected is the trailing off echo like the wake of a ship. And so just as the wake doesn't move the ship, the past does not move the present, unless you insist that it does. And if you say, well, naturally I'm always moved by the past, that's an alibi. completely fails to explain how you ever learn anything new. <laughs> That's why all the psychologists who are mostly behaviorists are completely bogged down in trying to find a theory of learning. Because according to the, the theory of learning that we have, everything that new that you assimilate is really only learned when translated into terms of what you already know. In that sense, learning becomes like a library which increases only by the addition of books about books already in it. <laughs> a lot of libraries are indeed like that. 
so that's what we call scholasticism. So then, you become aware that this happening isn't happening to you, because you are the happening. The only you there is, is what's going on. You know, feel it. And disregard these stupid distinctions that you can talk, I mean, stupid relativism, and feel it genuinely. When you feel genuinely, you get down to rock bottom, all that isn't there. That's a game that's been erected on And it isn't determined. In other words, you get this odd feeling of a synthesis between doing and happening. In which doing is as much happening as happening, and happening is as much doing as doing. And if you're not very careful, Claim yourself God Almighty in the Hebrew Christian sense. <coughs> like Troy that let his babies feel that they're omnipotent. And in a way they are. I am omnipotent insofar as I'm the universe. But I'm not I'm omnipotent in the role of Alan Watts. Only cunning. <laughs> so now then this sensation of the happening is basic to all we want to explore it's there as you see, you can't do anything. And that as you see you can't do anything, you don't go and distract yourself with something else, like committing suicide, or uh, getting drunk, or any sort of distraction. Because if you do that, you will miss what follows from the feeling of what is going on when you're not doing it. When you're not able even to not do it. See, this is a sticky place. You can't get in and you can't get out. That's why it's called in Zen, the mosquito biting the iron bull. Or the man who swallowed the ball of red hot iron, which he can't gulp down and can't spit out. See, it's that difficult. What are you to do or not do? And that tells you, you see, that dilemma. That what you thought was you just isn't there at all. But don't make it difficult, because that's a form of evading it. Don't make it easy. That's a form of evading it. It's neither difficult nor easy, because if it were difficult, it would have to be difficult for someone. If it were easy, it would have to be easy for someone. And the someone we're talking about is just the one that isn't there. And if you think it is there, okay, it's a free country. You can have that thought, but it's a thought. In other words, your ego is a thought among thoughts. It is not, in fact, the controlling thinker, or the feeler, or the sensor. It's one of them. 
so therefore this thing is going along. And as I say, we get anxious because we feel nobody's in control, but nobody ever was. You know, you've lived thus far a reasonably orderly life. I mean, there have been some catastrophes and uh, messes, but it's amazing how we have got this far. I mean, the thing looks after itself. And you will well remember that a lot of times that when you thought you were in charge and doing something sensible, you did something extremely foolish. And when you thought you did something extremely foolish, it turned out to be a blessing. That's the way things go. Now, of course, uh, this is a dangerous way of speaking to people who are in the process, of young people especially, who are still in the process of learning elementary competence in the culture, learning the taboos and the conventions. Because we take their minds off the happening. To do that, well, it isn't necessary to do it that way. It isn't really necessary to turn a child into a moron in the process of becoming an adult, but that's what we do. Because we teach a child to be a child. And uh, that prevents them from growing up. It's a method of keeping them off the labor market. But if you speak to a child from the beginning as if it were an adult, and talk, not baby talk, but straight language, your child will become master of English language, say about three years old, certainly talking. Then the trouble is you have to send the poor thing to school. <laughs> and uh, where if it is that advanced, it will be regarded as a freak. And have a very bad time. So it will have to conceal itself in the Sometimes children are brought up without that interruption of being a child. You know, with all the cutie pie stuff. What's all the trouble about? In other words, what is your state of mind when you contemplate the possibility of everything becoming nothing? All right, so the universe is a transitory system, like a bubble, like smoke, like foam on the water. And so, how easy? Just go along with it. Dissolve. Then what? What does that do to you when you envisage that possibility? How do you feel inside? Why do you feel that way inside? 
And really, you can't resist this. Even if you don't believe that that's what's going to happen, that there is some immortality principle, there is spirit or something which outlasts this change. Supposing it changes, it changes and changes and changes and then stops changing altogether. Because everything in the end, you know when the television switches off, the screen goes down to a point which vanishes. Shut off. Supposing that is the conclusion of it all. And anyway, time goes by so fast, doesn't it? And the older you get, the faster it seems to go. When you're a child, time drags a good deal, much slower. But as you get old, you begin to read obituary notices with your contemporaries in them. And uh, you see everything changing. Well, it won't be long now, after all. And it dissolves. Uh, it may be a very painful dissolution, mostly because you're resisting it. So, what's the problem? Why, why don't we want to give up? What do we think we're going to get by holding on and by resisting the dissolution? Now, I'm not saying at the moment that uh, as I'm a sort of preacher advocating giving up. What I'm interested in for you to feel is what do, what do you really feel like inside at the prospect of there being nothing, of this whole thing being a bubble that dissolves. See, about death, the, the reality of approaching death, people are apt to feel chilly, cold, lonely, uh, scared because it's an unknown. The, the most frightening thing about death is there might be something beyond it, and you don't know what it is. You remember, facing the world as a child, or at any time, the world is full of, 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 of threats, mostly from other people. And there are monsters. There are all sorts of things that scare you, but beyond every monster is death. Dissolution is the end of it all. And by and large, the art of government is to fill that void beyond death with threats of a rather unspecified nature so that we can rule people by saying if you don't do as i tell you i'll kill you or you'll kill yourself and so long as we can be scared of that and so long as we can be made to think of death as a bad thing we can be ruled that is why no government likes mystics. Because if we define the mystic as the person who is no longer scared of death, because the mystic is in the simplest possible language, the person who understands that you have to have nothing to have something. So, 
You can't fundamentally scare the mystic with death. Because, say, well, what end can it all come to? What's all the trouble about? The most it can come to is nothing. I mean, there may be some troubles on the way of resisting this, basically resisting it. I mean, as you might say, the very cells in your body resist their dissolution. And so, in this resistance, there's an experience called pain, which we've been discussing. But beyond pain, this is annihilation. Or so it seems, anyway. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? Nobody can think about it. Wait a minute. Nobody can think about it. But what is that state when you're teased out of thought? See, get with it. Going to sleep and never waking up. This is not, as you would fantasize it, a state of being in the dark forever. It is not like being buried alive. Because then there's an experience of darkness. Now I remember a little while ago, uh, having at one of my seminars, a girl who was born blind. And I had the most interesting discussion with her because she doesn't know what darkness is. The word is absolutely meaningless to her. Because she's never seen light. Now so, when you really think about nothingness, it becomes like how your head looks to your eyes. And behind the eyes you don't see darkness, do you? Right now. You are not aware of a contrast of light here and black there. Behind the visual field, this way, you can't see darkness. There is simply nothing conceivable at all. Neither darkness nor light. See? Right. So, might one venture to say almost that that area of blankness we call death is what lies behind the eyes. In other words, it is what we can't think about. <laughs> That's what's watching. In other words, the farthest we can go in thinking about nothing, you see, we get to the root of the matter. Let me put this in another way. The world is formed. Now, you cannot look for the origin of form in form. Because what you would get then would be a universe where you couldn't make out any form at all because there was so much of it. It would be like writing a letter on top of a newspaper. But one can read, one can see form, one can see the world simply because there's always emptiness behind it. So you see, in this way, emptiness being the mother of form. And you can always say, yes, only the form is there, that's all that's real. But that is only saying, it's all that is figure. What about background? It always has to be there.
So let's go on then into our visualization, our imagination. Use your imagination for all its worth. To think yourself into the fact that this whole sense of importance, of vitality, of aliveness, of being is simply a sudden experience which was nothing before it started and will be nothing after it's over. That is the simplest possible thing you could believe in. <laughs> it requires no intellectual effort. Nothing. Supposing that's the way it is. Now I repeat. What's your inside feeling? Supposing, let's say, you feel sorry. For whom is this sorry? Who, when it's all over, will there be to feel sorry? But when it's come to an end, nobody will either regret or be happy about it. That will be there. So in a way, you can say, well, this feeling of sorrow that I have that it's going to come to an end is really rather irrelevant because let me look at the thing from the other direction. Supposing it never would come to an end. In other words, here is this alternation of joy and sorrow. And uh, I, however happy I am today, I'm always going to feel miserable later on. And they may be happy again, but then after that, miserable. And this is never, never going to stop. I just can't get rid of the damn thing. Well, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, when you think it through. So you say, well, let's make a compromise between these two possibilities. One is that uh, this compromise is, in other words, that it will disappear altogether, but then it'll start again. Because when it starts again, it'll feel like it does now, which is that it never happened before. <laughs> so, uh, you're, you're always in the same place, just like you feel now. That's supposing that the Hindus are right, that the universe lasts for 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and then it starts and runs for another 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and it does it again and it does it and does it and does it and does it and there is no end to this but fortunately because of the forgettery every 4,320,000 years it doesn't become a totally insufferable bore there is this blank space this trough between the crests of the waves you see now the Hindus thought about that and they got tired and they, they thought about the possibility of moksha, liberation or nirvana from the everlasting cycle of appearing and disappearing. But then when they had thought that through, the Buddhists for example, having really said now we've got the trick, because the Buddha said after his enlightenment, now I found you out you who build the house. I'm going to take the house apart. The roof beam is brought down. Desire is the builder of the house. See, I found you. Never again shall you build it. And the Buddhists thought that one over. I asked, said, crazy, we found a way out of samsara, the wheel of birth and death. 
And somebody one day said, but, isn't that rather selfish? You get yourself out, what about all the other people? Don't you have any feeling of compassion? Oh yes, they said, of course. Uh, we forgot that, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's come back again and uh, help all these people out. And then they got very sophisticated about it and they said, look, if nirvana is released from birth and death, then they're opposed. And so nirvana and birth and death go together and they will have to imply one. So you're only really released if you see that, if you see that nirvana and birth and death are the same thing. Now I'm going to pull a fast one. <laughs> so every time an incarnation occurs, it feels like this one. See, it might be quite different. We might be reincarnated in another universe as beings of an altogether different shape. See? Not at all like human beings. But because we were used to it, we would feel that that was the human shape. We would say, well, that's natural. Obviously, obviously, that's the way things are. So naturally, if you appeared in the form of a, of a, a spider, you would look around at other spiders and say, well, yes, of course, this is, this is natural shape to be in. This is the human shape. Something that is not us looks at us and thinks we look perfectly terrible. I mean, imagine how you look to a fish. Clumsy, cumbersome, stupid looking thing. Because a fish is so elegant and graceful and can slide through the water so beautifully. The human beings can't even swim properly. <laughs> so don't, don't you see that in every world that comes into being or could come into being, it seems just like it seems now. And every species that you could belong to would seem like this one. It would have its up end of what is highly intelligent and its low end of what is not so intelligent. You would be aware of superior forces and inferior forces. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the idea of mastering a situation unless there were situations you couldn't master. Now we are not aware of species, of beings above us, unless you cultivate those forms of psychic awareness where you think you're in touch with angels or something of that sort. But the things that appear to be above us are great natural processes. Only we think they're rather stupid, only very tough, too strong for us. Earthquakes, uh, the elements, also some little ones. See, the virus is a very troublesome being. And this is where a human being uh, really finds himself at his wit's end in dealing with molecular biology. So, you know, if the monsters <laughs> don't get you, <laughs> the insects. <laughs> you see? But at any rate, whatever level you're on, it always appears to be the same one. Now, we 
And therefore, naturally, don't we, we feel we're in the middle. We feel, for example, with the telescope, that there is a world greater than us that is infinitely greater. We feel with the microscope there's a world below us that's infinitely smaller. And we seem to stand in the middle. Of course you seem to stand in the middle. Every creature stands in the middle. Because if you stand on a boat in the middle of the ocean and you turn around through an angle of 360 degrees, you will see the same distance in every direction. That's because you see. And your sensitivity to sight or the intensity of light is the same in every direction. So you're in the middle. You're always in the middle. Where else would you be? In other words, anything that perceives anywhere is always in the middle. Anything that grows anywhere is always in the middle. It's betwixt and between. And the middle always has, therefore, extremes. It has extremes in space. As far west and as far east, as you could think. As far on and as far back. And there's always a beginning and there's always an end. Just as there's a left and a right. Or a top and a bottom. So, also, if you are aware of a state which you call is, or reality, or life, this implies another state called ism, or illusion, or unreality, or nothingness, or death. There it is. You can't know one without the other. And so as to make life poignant, it's always going to come to an end. That is exactly, don't you see, what makes it lively. Liveliness is change, is motion. And motion is going like this, see, going to fall out. You're, you're always at the place where you always are. <laughs> Only it keeps appearing to change. And you think, wow, a little further on, we'll get that thing. <laughs> uh, I hope we don't go further down so that we lose what we already have. But that is built into every creature's situation, no matter how high, no matter how low. So, in this sense, all places are the same place. And the only time you ever notice any difference is in the moment of transition. When you go up a bit, you gain. When you go down a bit, you feel disappointed, gloomy, lost. You go all the way down to death. Somehow, there seems to be a difficulty in getting all the way up. Death seems so final. Nothingness seems so very, very irrevocable and permanent. But then if it is, what about the nothingness that was before you started? So don't you see, uh, what we've left out of our logic, and this is part of the game rule of the game that we're playing, is the, 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 the way we hoodwink ourselves is by attributing 
powerlessness to nothingness and saying ex nihilo nihil fit nothing can come out of nothing we don't realize that is a complete logical fallacy on the contrary it takes nothing to have something because you wouldn't know what something was without nothing you wouldn't know what the form is without the background space you wouldn't be able to see anything unless there were nothing behind your eyes now imagine yourself with a spherical eye you can see all around but now what's in the middle see even if i have all this behind me in view suddenly i will find that there is something in the middle of it all there's a hole in the middle of, of reality like now there seems to be not so much a hole but a wall but any animal which had eyes in the back of its head would have the sensation i'm describing now you may say to me well all that's wishful thinking because when you're dead you're dead see <laughs> now wait a minute what's that state of consciousness that talks in that way This is somebody saying something. Who wants to make a point? Now what point does that sort of person want to make? Like when you're dead, you're dead, see? Why that's one of the people who want to rule the world. So frightened about death. Death is real, see? I mean, it's just don't indulge in wishful thinking. All you people who dream of an afterlife and heavens and gods and mystical experiences and eternity or oh, you're just wishy-washy people you don't face the facts what facts how can i face the fact of nothing which is by definition not a fact you see all this is twaddle from whichever way you look at it <laughs> so if you really go the whole way and see how you feel at the prospect of vanishing forever of all your efforts and all your achievements and your all your attainments turning into dust and nothingness what is the feeling what happens to you it's a curious thing that in the world's poetry this is a very common theme the earthly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers and a non like snow upon the desert's dusty face lighting up the hour of all kinds of poetry emphasizes the theme of transience and there's a kind of nostalgic beauty to it a banquet hall deserted after the revelry all the guests have left and gone their ways and the table with overturned glasses crumpled napkins bread crumbs dirty knives and forks lies empty and the laughter echoes only
and then the echo comes. The memory. The traces are all gone. That's the end. Do you see, in a way, how that is saying the most real state is the state of nothing? That's what it's going to all come to. With these physicists who think of the energy of the universe running down, dissipating in radiation, gradually, 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 until there's nothing at all left. And for some reason or other, we're supposed to find this depressing. But if somebody is going to argue that the basic reality is nothing, where does all this come from? Obviously from nothing. <laughs> Once again, you get how it looks behind your eye. So cheer up, you see. This is what is meant in Buddhist philosophy by saying we are all basically nothing. When the sixth patriarch says the essence of your mind that's how it is behind your eyes, is intrinsically pure. The pure doesn't mean a non-dirty story state of mind, as it is apt to mean in the word Puritan. Pure means clear, void. So you know the story when uh, the sixth patriarch was given office as successor, because he was truly enlightened, there was a poetry contest, and the losing one wrote the idea that the mind, the consciousness, was like a mirror, which had to be polished, and constantly one, I have to polish my mirror, I have to purify my mind, see, so that I'm detached and calm and clear-headed and, uh, you know, Buddha, <laughs> but the one who won the contest said, there is no mirror, and the nature of the mind is intrinsically void, so where is there anywhere for dust to blow? See? So in this way, by seeing that nothingness is the fundamental reality, and you see it's your reality, then how can anything contaminate you? Or the idea of your being scared and put out and worried and so on, it's just nothing, it's a dream, because you're really not. But this is the most incredible thing. And the sixth patriarch, likewise, went on to contrast emptiness of indifference, which is sort of blank emptiness. If you, if you think of this nothingness as mere blankness, and you hold on to the idea of blankness, you haven't understood it. He said nothingness is really like the nothingness of space, which contains the whole universe. All sun and stars and the mountains and rivers and the good men and the bad men and the animals and the insects, the whole bit, all are contained in the world. So out of this void comes everything and you're it. What else could you be? See, so what I'm showing you is that all this hocus pocus about the fear of nothingness 
is truly speaking, nothingness is what we want to talk about when we talk about the spiritual. Only, it's all been ignored. It's all been put down. And say, oh, nothingness. Bleh! Heaven preserve us from that. <laughs> but, uh, that's the very, that's where the secret lies. And obviously, the secret always lies in the place you never think of looking for it. In mythology, this comes again and again. Okay, this is Christmas. Where is the Christ born? In a palace? No, where no one would think of looking. In pigsty. Although, <laughs> I have a Japanese friend who once said to me, he said, you know, the real difference between Christianity and Buddhism is that Christ was the son of a carpenter and Buddha the son of a prince. <laughs> I thought that was rather funny. <laughs> well, we don't know who the prince is without the carpenter, do we? <laughs> Now it's in that sense, really, that I could suggest to you that you meditate on nothing. I know you can't think about it. But yet, when it becomes perfectly clear to you that that's what you are, and what you were before you were born, Where can anybody stick a knife in? Fundamentally, you see. All right. Get it, because uh, th th this, this is really the secret of the whole thing. If you see that, now we, we want to go on and be able to answer all the people who will come bug us about it. Because whether you say anything about it to other people or not, people are going to bug you about this. And say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you really are something. You know, you, you'll know it. Wowee, you know, the, the life isn't the way you think. It's going to be awful. See? It'll be real. Ooh. And, <laughs> The, uh, they'll say, oh, you okay. Where in such a philosophy as this is there any basis for the love of one's fellow men? For joy in children, for cultivating gardens, for doing this and that and the other thing. Where is there? There is no basis in it. That's the same way there is no basis in emptiness for form, or so it seems. But only precisely to the degree that you have discovered the nothingness that you you find you're suddenly full of energy. That is energy. It's the source and origin of energy. So that when, you know, there's, not, there's sort of nothing in your way, then you can do exactly what I was describing as having this clean, 
before going into doing this, that and the other thing and being thoroughly creative. But you can't be creative out of your just plain somethingness. You need nothingness to be creative. And that's what we are. And this too is, is real nothingness. And I think it's not darkness. It's not like being buried alive forever. It's not like rest. Even when the Catholics sing, rest eternal, grant unto them, O Lord, and that light perpetual shine upon them. This isn't rest. It isn't motion. Neither motion nor rest. What is it? Nobody can imagine. And it's at that point, you see, where the imagination completely runs out and stops. There we've hit the thing. There you are right at the fundamental mystical reality. Now, what this is we're talking about is what mystics have quite often discussed. Only this isn't read very much. It's a state called agnosia, which means unknowing. There's a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, written by an English monk in the 14th century. But it's based on another book called Theologia Mystica, which was written in the 6th century by an unknown Syrian monk who used the name of Dionysius the Areopagite. And absolutely fascinating, very short little book, which I translated long ago, back in 1943, and I'm about to reissue it. Anyone who subscribes to the journal will get it. With a new introduction altogether, because I rethought the whole thing. But this book ends up with a description of God, which is all in negatives. Not any kind of anything you can imagine at all. Not light, not power, not spirit. Not fatherhood, not sonship, not uh, this, that, and the other. All the way down the line. Everything that anybody's ever said or thought about God is denied. Because God is infinite and therefore beyond the reach of any conception at all. So he says that anybody who, having a vision, thought he saw God, would not have seen God but some creature that God has made that is less than God. So again, you approach in a Christian context, said in such a way that even St. Thomas Aquinas bought it. Uh, that you can't impute heresy to it. Because everybody's got to agree that God is the witch than which there is no witcher. And this guy spells it out. So in the same way you get Nagarjuna saying that the ultimate reality is shunyata, voidness. So Shankara gets at it, where he says that which is the knower or the knowing and everything can never itself be an object of its own knowledge, for fire doesn't burn itself, although it burns other things. So we never know what the Brahman is, just like the eyes don't ever see the head. 
if you put something there, you are stopping short of nothing and you don't get the whole benefit of it, that's all. If you insist that there is something there, that there is the loving father at the end of the line, or the paradise garden, you are really cheating yourself. Because it's only when you have thorough emptiness and real downright nothingness at the end of the line that you get the full impact. No holes. Look, Mama, no hands. See? <laughs> Now, I really think that's the simplest thing I could possibly tell you. <laughs> I really don't know what else there is to be said about this whole Zen project or uh, mysticism, Vedanta, what have you. Uh, it comes down to that and there are infinitely many ways of evading. But what I'm trying to point out to you, you see, is the way in which you see the point by taking the line of least resistance by facing the facts by not super adding to truth something you contribute to it your own business that you put up but saying if I follow what I can see or can see with my senses to be reality as far as we can look it seems that this is sort of the inevitable conclusion which everybody has spent endless effort in arguing about and resisting, not realizing <laughs> that if they went the whole way, how splendid it would be. And that's all you have to do.